Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Andrew Russell. Sanctuary of Safety is the title of our message uh, this morning, Sanctuary of Safety. And you'll get the gist of why that title is there. Now, this weekend's a special weekend. What is it? For the broader community, it is what? Easter, Easter. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about um, Easter in the context of the Bible today. Um, but I really want uh, the message really is there to help us identify who we are as a people. As a people. Before I begin, though, can I ask you to um, bow your heads with me for an added word of prayer? Thank you, Heavenly Father. Lord, I come to you, Lord, in the name of your Son Jesus, Lord. And Lord, I claim the promise of your word, Lord, that if we come boldly to your throne of grace, Lord, we will find help, Lord. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak through me today. Lord, unplug our ears, Lord. Help us to forget the worries of the week, this moment in time, that we may sit at your feet and contemplate, Lord, your voice speaking to us today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a little, I have a little practice. Whenever there's a big season um, or festive season in the community, oops, I usually, um, I like to jump on, uh, jump on the internet and look at some of the news articles associated with the season. And uh, so I did that with Easter again this year. I did it last year too, but I did that. And I came across a fascinating article, news article, uh, in the Independent, it's a UK publication, and it was entitled "Easter: The Right of Spring." R I T E, Easter: The Right of Spring. Now, it in this article it noted that um, that in Europe, the church, the church traditionally calculates this the timing of the season in conjunction with the spring equinox. Does anyone know what the spring equinox is? Okay. The, the spring equinox is a time when the sun basically shines directly on the equator and the length of day and night is almost equal in the day. Okay. Now, the church traditionally calculates the season of Easter in conjunction with the spring equinox, but particularly... Um, what it does, it looks for the first full moon after the spring equinox, and then it looks for the first Sunday after that first full moon, and that Sunday then becomes Easter Sunday. Are you with me? So the first, so the spring equinox usually takes place around March 20, and the first full moon this year was on Tuesday, April the 11th. So, of course, the first Sunday now is this Sunday. And so we have the Easter season. That's how we have the Easter season. Easter season. The church, of course, traditionally it's the Catholic church. The article, and this gets more interesting, the article noted also that historians traditionally have linked the celebration of spring and Easter in Europe with the Saxon goddess of spring. And her name is Oyster. Okay, 
I'm trying to pronounce it with the spelling. Of course, you know, spring in the northern hemisphere, it's known as the spring equinox, it's known as the vernal equinox, but of course in the southern hemisphere it's our time of autumn. So they, they noted, uh, he noted, the, um, the author of this article noticed that historians traditionally have linked the celebration of spring and Easter in Europe with the Saxon goddess of spring, Oyster, who was the counterpart of the Phoenician fertility goddess Astarte or Ashtaroth, and the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. And that's where we get the name from, right? Now, I know some of you may be familiar with this, but if you're not, this is very, very fascinating, very fascinating. And... Uh, and uh, the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, um, hence the symbols of the symbols of fertility, as the bunny rabbits and the eggs. Isn't that right? She was the goddess of fertility. She was also known as a warrior goddess too. It then noted, the article went on to note that the Puritans. Who are the Puritans? They went to America from England. Isn't that right? They were Christians. They were the Protestants in England, right? So it says here, it, the, um, the article they noted that the Puritans during the Protestant Reformation tried to suppress the celebration of Easter as they did with Christmas due to the misconduct of men and women associated with this time. There's a certain behavior or certain misconduct that was associated with this time. It was known as Hocktide. Have you heard of Hocktide before? All right. Now, Hocktide is most likely the remnants of a fertility rite that is associated with Ishtar, the goddess of fertility. For example, in the case of the Babylonians who practiced prostitution in the name of Ishtar. So Hoctide, there in Europe, was also known as binding days. Binding days. Because what would happen, individuals would catch and tie up or bind up someone of the opposite sex. And then kiss them. And they did this um, until the person that was bound up promised to pay a ransom for their freedom. A practice endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church and used for the sake of fundraising for the church. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Hocktide, though, became infamous for the disorderliness and excesses that accompanied this Easter practice. Are you with me? didn't just stop but a kiss. And it became, there was a lot of misconduct taking place, a lot of excess that accompanied this Easter practice. And it was the voice of the Reformation that helped to put it to an end. Amen. Amen. For all you single ladies and men out there, that's not how we do it, right? <laughs> we do it God's way. So, here we have, here we have the practices associated with Easter, Hoctide and so forth. Now, the article goes on and says that in spite of these historic roots, it, uh, the author still advocated for Easter as a public, as a holiday, and I'm quoting from the, from the author now, 
he still advocated for Easter, in spite of these practices, still advocated for Easter as a holiday, sanctified by tradition and guaranteed by law. Enjoy your public holiday, everyone. <laughs> now, using the example of Ashtoreth or Ishtar, I want you to notice this morning that there is a direct correlation between these rites of worship or temple worship and human conduct. And we're going to go to the Bible for that. I want you to notice that God rebuked Israel, rebuked Israel for its practices associated with the worship of Ashtoreth and other associated gods. Turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 10 verse 6. Judges chapter 10 verse 6. Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. Notice here the Bible says, and there's a picture of a more modern day picture of Hawk died. You've got the men chasing the woman. They're going to bind her up. Okay. Judges chapter 10 verse 6. The Bible says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served him not. What did the children of Israel do in the sight of the Lord, did the Bible say? Verse 6, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice the behavior associated with these pagan practices. Go with me now to 1 Kings. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. And what we're going to see here is that Solomon, he erected places of worship uh, for Ashtaroth and, uh, and, uh, and all these other gods as well. What, what verse did I say, everyone? 1 Kings chapter 11. Let's read verse 5 to 8. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 5 to 8. Are we there, church? Amen. All right, let's read. It says, For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians. The Zidonians, by the way, were also known as the Phoenicians. They were also known as the people of Tyre. Okay? The people of Tyre. It's interesting because in the book of Ezekiel, we've got Satan there is spoken about, but um, it is the king of Tyre that is used as a symbol of his rebellion. Isn't that right? Of his rebellion and his idolatry. So notice here, as we read on, um, let's read verses, uh, let's read from verse 6. It says, well, 5, sorry. It says, For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. What did he do, everyone? Evil. And went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his, what? Strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. So here we have an example of Solomon as well, building for Ashtaroth, drawing the children of Israel into this, into this worship. Um, you know, there was a time when I wondered how someone could bow down to a statue. Have you ever thought about that? You know, why would you do that? I mean, you know, how could you bow down to a statue? But I've realized it's not so much about the statue. 
It's really about the practices and the philosophies associated with that person or you know, the originator of those philosophies and, and practices. It's really about the practices, the philosophies that are appealing to people. And because that's appealing, they're, they're then willing to honor the originator of those practices and those philosophies. So that's really what it's about. Um, I want to share with you a statement from Watson's Biblical and Archaeological Dictionary, 1833, and what it says about Ashtoreth here. And this is to give you a better idea of the practices of this religion and what was happening in the life of the children of Israel. It says here, Ashtoreth, or Astarte, a goddess of the Zidonians. The word Ashtoreth properly signifies flocks of sheep or goats and sometimes the grove or woods because she was a goddess of the woods. And groves were her what? Temples. If you don't know what a grove is, read on with me. It says in groves, which were small groups of trees, uh, uh, in groves consecrated to her such lasciviousness or lustful practices was committed as rendered her worship infamous or shameful. Do you get what was happening up there on the hilltops around the city of Jerusalem now in the woods? What the people were up to now, what Solomon was enticed into, and the children of Israel was enticed into. Goes on to say she was also called the Queen of Heaven, and sometimes her worship is said to be that of the host of heaven. Her temples generally accompanied those of the sun, and while bloody sacrifices or human victims were offered to Baal, bread, alcohols, and perfumes were presented to Astarte or Ashtaroth. Does that give us a better picture of what was happening now, of what was happening in terms of the worship of Ashtaroth? So uh, the goddess of heaven there, if you read in the book of Jeremiah, it says they, they baked buns for the goddess of heaven. Has anyone ever read that? Okay, and so that's why at this time of the year we have not only Easter bunnies and the Easter eggs, but we also have the hot cross Buns, with our hot cross buns. So how did this vile celebration of Easter become associated with Jesus Christ? Let me read to you a statement from the Catholic Encyclopedia and you'll have a better understanding here. It began with the Roman Emperor Constantine. Listen to this statement. It says, the emperor himself, being Constantine, writing to the churches after the Council of Nicaea, exhorts at this meeting the question concerning the most holy day of Easter was discussed, and it was resolved by the united judgment of all present that this feast ought to be kept by all and in every place on one and the same day, being Easter Sunday. You see, uh, there were those that, that, that knew that the... Um, uh, you know, that still acknowledge the Passover sacrifice, right? Or the Pasha. But here the church was saying, no, 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 we need to come to a different arrangement. Uh, notice here, it brings us to light. It says, and first of all, it appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, we should follow the practice of the Jews, Passover. And I myself have undertaken that this decision should meet with the approval of your sagacity, your knowledge, that is, in the hope that your wisdoms will gladly admit 
that practice which is observed, being Easter Sunday, at once in the city of Rome and in Africa, throughout Italy and Egypt, with the entire unity of judgment. There we go. So this is how the vile celebration of Easter became to be associated with the sacrifice of Jesus, which those Jewish converts initially brought, the, you know, got the knowledge from the Passover from. And the Passover was practiced at a different time. And so here it's being instituted. Notice the date. When was it there? What does it say? 325 AD. That's very close to another significant date. Does anyone know what it is? 321 AD. What happened in 321 AD? Sunday was instituted as the venerable day of the sun, a day of worship, and was legislated across the Roman Empire. And just four years later, Easter now, this pagan practice is now brought uh, to be celebrated for the honor of Jesus Christ, by the way, on a Sunday. On a Sunday. Wow. There you go. There you go. You know, I was a Catholic, you know. <laughs> I came out of the, uh, the Catholic Church, came into the message of God and uh, the Word of God. And, you know, I, some people may think I'm a bit right-wing, but I couldn't care less about Easter. I have no time for Easter eggs and bunny rabbits. Because I know where it comes from. So how does God answer this, uh, false, this false witness, uh, this false worship that was taking place in the life of the children of Israel? How did God, how was God going to remedy, how was God going to remedy the sinful practices of Israel and their worship of Asherah? There's a wonderful account of how God did this here on this occasion where he raised a reformer. What did I say? He raised a what? A reformer, just like those Puritans who denounced Easter and Christmas. He raised a reformer. This reformer was a man by the name of Josiah, king of Israel. He's the one I'd like us to look at today. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. Fascinating. There's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. The practices of yesteryear are still with us today. And God's people are unsuspecting of the practices that they're engaging, believing that they're giving honor to Jesus Christ. 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. And we're going to start at verse 12. 2 Kings chapter 23. Notice here verse 12. Now this is what King Josiah did. And at this time, uh, does anyone remember how old King Josiah was when he ascended to the throne? Seven years old. Okay. At this time when he, um, when he, um, he was eight years old, sorry, by the way, eight years old. At this time when he uh, begins this, this reformation, he was 26 years of age. Look here at verse 12. It says, And the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz which the kings of Judah had made. Notice there were other kings that followed in the same line as Solomon. In the, um, 
Let me start that again. And the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made, in the where? In the two courts of the house. I want you to notice that. In the two courts of the house. Okay, that was the holy place and the most holy place. Um, the Lord of, of the Lord did the king beat down and break them down from thence and cast the dust of them. So he broke down uh, these altars and he cast them where? Into the brook of? Into the brook of Kidron. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, oh, which Solomon the king of Israel had builded for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile, and he broke in pieces the images, and cut down the groves, and filled their places with the bones of them. With the bones of them. Amen. Amen. Je, uh, Josiah was, was cleaning house. Josiah was cleaning house. But this brought an interesting uh, notion to my attention, and that was... What initially began on the, on the hilltops of surrounding Israel eventually made its way where? Into the very temple itself. Into the very temple itself. Brothers and sisters, here's something you and I can learn from. That which takes place on the outside, which is abomination in the sight of the Lord, will eventually, if continued in practice, will make its way into the church. That's why in the church the divorce rates are almost identical to the divorce rates outside of the church. Now you know why. That's why pornography viewing rates inside the church are almost identical to the pornography viewing rates outside of the church. Did you know that? That's how Easter and Christmas and Sunday worship came into the church. That's why people think it's okay also to bring, to bring alcohol and rock and roll into the life of the church. These were idolatrous practices. These were idolatrous practices. So Josiah started to tear these things down and he dropped them and burnt them in the Kidron brook or the Kidron valley there, a place where destroyed idols and the bodies of the rebellious were crushed and burned. It ran past the place where sacrifice were offered. It was also it went through the wilderness of the scapegoat. That's in relation to the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary. But here's something that, uh, that I think we need to consider. You see, the Kidron was a place that was very, very familiar to Jesus. Did you know that? It was a very, very familiar place to Jesus. You know why? It was situated on the east side of the Temple Mount. If you stood on the top of, 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 um, of Mount Zion or top of the hilltop where Jerusalem, the city is, and you look down over the east side, you would see the embankment go down, run down into the Kidron Valley down below where the brook uh, would flow, and then it would go up on the other side, and on the other side, does anyone know what was on the other side? 
It was the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives, a place where Jesus often went to pray. And I imagine, as I'm sure you can, that every time Jesus walked down the hillside of Jerusalem and passed through the Kidron, uh, the Kidron Valley there, he recalled the idolatrous practices of his people because they were recorded in the Word of God. He would recall. Each time he passed through the Kidron Valley, the more acquainted he became with the sinful practices of his people. Wow. We don't think about Jesus sometimes doing that. Walking through there all the time. Walking through the cesspool that was the Kidron Valley. Sometimes the garbage would flow through there too. And Jesus walked through there. And he had read about the sinful practices, the idolatrous practices of his people, the behavior associated with the temple worship of these these, uh, pagan gods. But I believe the reason why Jesus had that experience was so that he he could acquaint himself with the struggles of his people. Does that make sense? I mean, he never participated in those practices, but he certainly was acquainted with the struggles of his people. He's acquainted with your struggles and with my struggles. So Josiah cleaned out God's sanctuary, but it was a cooperative work. Turn with me back in your Bibles now to Second Kings there. And uh, I want to take you just to chapter 22 for a moment. Chapter 22. And I want you to notice here. Verse 8. Let's read from verse 8. It says, And Hilkiah, who was Hilkiah? The high priest said unto Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Now, what's happening here? Josiah is, be- is beginning to like want to clean up the house of God. He wants to get it back in order. And they come across the book of the law. It's also known as the, the book of the covenant. It had the covenant agreement that God had made with his children um, when he led them out of the bondage of Egypt. And so he finds that. And then um, Hilkiah commands uh, Shaphan to take it to King, jo- uh, to King Josiah. And he begins to read it. And he begins to read it. And this is when he finds that he recognizes what, what, are we do- what has been happening, what have we been doing. And this is when he then begins to tear down the idols and clear out the house of God. Here was a a co-laboring effort. Notice you had the the high priest there and you had the king. Are you with me? You had the high priest there and you had the king. And as he began this work of cleansing the temple, notice what he put in its place. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 23. Look at verse 20 to 22. 
20 to 22, 2 Kings chapter 20, 23, verses 20 to 22. It says here, And he slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars, and burned men's bones upon them, and returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the what? The Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holden such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah. Do you know what it's saying there, folks? It's saying here that as he, as he read the book and he came across the knowledge of the, the, the feast and what the sanctuary was really all about, he began to implement those uh, those. Uh, Feast celebrations, beginning with the Passover feast, which was the first calendar feast in the life of Israel. And he began to, to, to implement that again. And it said there that uh, surely there was not such a Passover from the days of the judges, even the days of the kings, until then. What does that mean? It would have been a long time since Israel worshipped God in accordance with His will. Does that make sense? It had been a long, long time. been a long time. And you know what happened as they began to observe the Passover? They were reminded, the people were reminded of a God who had delivered them out of bondage through the blood of the Lamb that they had posted on their doorposts in Egypt. Isn't that right? They were reminded of that. Exodus 19, God said to, in Exodus 19 verse 4, God said to, to Moses, speak to the, to the children of Israel, speak to my children, tell them that I am the Lord their God, which brought them out of, the, out of Egypt. And then he went into covenant with them and he says, now therefore, if they obey my voice and keep my covenant, they'll be my people, I will be their God. And so they're reminded of this God once again. They had lost the knowledge of God. What was it that brought them back? What was the Reformation here based upon? The book of the law. It was founded upon the Word of God. Amen? It was founded upon the Word of God. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme of this, of this covenant-keeping God in, uh, in Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. I'd like you to go with me firstly actually to Hebrews chapter 8 before we go to Hebrews chapter 9. Oh, this is a wonderful message. I'm trying to put in context to you the sanctuary as a place of safety. The sanctuary as a place of safety. Hebrews chapter 8, we are told, Paul tells the, tells the Hebrew people, He's preaching here about the gospel of Jesus Christ and he says this in verse 1 and 2, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, heavens, in the heavens, a minister of the true sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Paul's pointing to a heavenly temple, a heavenly sanctuary. And who's he pointing to that's there on the right hand of God? Jesus Christ. And what does he call Jesus? 
a high priest, a high priest. And then he goes on a bit further down in chapter 8 and he talks about the covenant that God had established with his people and, and how they were unfaithful to that covenant. He found fault with them. And so he was looking to recovenant with the people. He was looking to recovenant with the people. In Hebrews chapter 9, Paul begins to talk about that, that, that earthly sanctuary, the one that we just read about that was defiled with idolatry. And he talks about the purpose of it. Look at chapter 9. Let's read from verse 1. It says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, the first compartment that is, wherein was the candlestick and the table uh, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle or the compartment, which is called the what? The holiest of all, which had the golden sense and the Ark of the Covenant. That was where the Ten Commandments were. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of what we cannot now speak particularly. Let me ask you here, folks, why is Paul talking about the worldly sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary? Because? Why is he referring to it? I said it to you before. This was a pattern of a true, a, a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly sanctuary, and he's pointing to Jesus Christ, isn't he? He's pointing the people to Jesus Christ and a particular ministry that Jesus is conducting. Now it says here um, in verse 6, it says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. How often did he go? Always. That was known as the daily ministration, every day. But notice in verse uh, 7 now it says, But into the second compartment, or the most holy place, when the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. What's Paul trying to tell us here? Let's keep reading. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifice, sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience." which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances, here we go, imposed on them until the time of the what? Until the time of the Reformation. Until the time of the Reformation. Do you know what he's doing? He's pointing to Jesus as the reformer of reformers. He's pointing to Jesus as the reformer of reformers. And he's saying Christ is doing a work. Christ is doing a work in the heavenly temple. And he's doing that on behalf of who? Of you and me. You see, the temple in heaven reflects a work that is being done in the temple on earth. But the temple on earth no, is no longer this worldly sanctuary that was there before. Uh, what's the temple on earth now, today? Sorry? It's the church, amen. It's God's people. So Christ 
is, is, is being pointed out as one who continues to do a work of reformation. You know, the thing with uh, Easter and, you know, as they imbibe, you know, Christ into this pagan celebration, you know, it's just about the death and resurrection, isn't it? But what about the high ministry of Jesus Christ? What about the work of reformation that he's doing on your behalf and my behalf, on behalf of his people right now? And he wants all the idols out. Amen? He wants all the idols out. He wants all the idols out. You see, the behavior in connection with this sanctuary is holy. It's holy. Oh, you know when the Lord speaks? Oh, I say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me a sinner, Lord. Your son is doing this work. You see, the, the story of, of Josiah and Hilkiah is, is a parallel, it's a reflection of what Christ as high priest and the Father as King is doing on your behalf and my behalf today. It's there to illustrate something. What God is doing with His Son on our behalf today, and He is working for reformation. Those idols have to come down, brothers and sisters. Amen? Those idols have to come down. Those idols have to come down. You know, uh, there's this booklet out, out there. 2017, 500 years after Luther. Does anyone know what this book is about? This year, there's going to be a celebration of the Reformation. Isn't that right? The Reformation. But who's celebrating it? Protestants, who were reformers, are celebrating with the Roman Catholic Church. Does anyone know what the, what the catch cry of the Protestant Reformation was? I'll give you a clue. Sola scriptural, Scriptura. Sola Scriptura and Sola Gracia. Sola Scriptura is the Bible alone. The authority for word and practice. Sola gracia, gracia is grace alone. Amen? Grace alone. Did anyone see that uh, thing with Tony Palmer a year or two ago? And he, and he stood before the Protestants and he said, Look, the Catholic Church has changed its position. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone. He said, Anyone remember that? Sola gracia. But what he didn't say was, Sola Scriptura. Everyone's crying grace, but nobody wants the Word of God. Amen? And this Word is the only means by which our temples are cleansed from the idolatries. Brothers and sisters, if we're not in the Word of God, where are we? If we're not in the Word of God, guess what? We're not in the temple. We're up there on the high places of Israel. High place of Israel. But let's finish with our final text here. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 as Paul goes on. Hebrews chapter 9. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus. Verse 14 it says, How much more 
shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the what? The living God. He's asked the question, how much more shall the blood of Christ? He's saying, look, you know, those things, those earthly things, you know, they were there to, to, to spark faith in the people. I mean, they, they were pointing to Jesus, they were there to spark faith. But, but now that Christ has come, now that we've seen the fulfillment of these shadows, and now that we have a high priest who is pleading his blood for you and for me, how much more will that blood stir us from, from a conscience of dead works to serve the living God? Amen? And that's why Peter says, I have to give you this last text. Let's go to the book of Peter. Look here in Peter. First Peter. First Peter chapter 2, I believe it is. First Peter chapter 2, notice. Verse 5, notice what Peter says. You also are what? As living stones or lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, has the blood of Jesus Christ purged your conscience of dead works? Has it made you a living tabernacle for Christ? Amen. Amen. Are you a lively stone? Are you a Protestant? Are you a reformer? That's your calling. That's my calling. That's our identity. Amen? And only as that sanctuary is cleansed, brothers and sisters, do we have safety in the Lord. And my appeal to you today is let's cleanse. Let's cleanse the temple of God. Amen? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you, Lord, for speaking to us, Lord. Oh, Father, there is hope, Lord, for each of us. The blood of Jesus is sufficient, Lord. Help us to come apart from the world, Lord. The world with its alcohol and immorality, Lord. Oh, Father, and help us to come back to your word. May the cry of our lives, Lord, be sola scriptura and sola gracia is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Whilst the Celtic Church was maintaining the pure apostolic faith in the British Isles and evangelizing there as well, the Waldensians were doing the same here in Northern Italy. The word Waldensian means people of the valleys. Originally though, in Italian, it was Valenses with a V. It was translated into the French as Vaudois. But in the 12th century, the V changed to a W and one of the L's became a D from where we get the name Waldensian today. The Waldensians did not see themselves as reformers. They did not see themselves as needing to separate from Rome, for they said, we have never belonged to it. They said they are part of the apostolic faith and could trace their origins all the way back to the early centuries. In fact, when we look at the history of the Waldensians over several hundred years, if not millennia, we can see that they were around in the very early centuries, in the fourth century with Vigilantes. We can see them in the seventh, the eighth, the ninth century. Some people say that the first Waldensian was Peter Waldo in the 12th century, but this is not really accurate. Whilst it is true that Peter Waldo was a merchantman from Lyon, he did sell all of his goods and commit his life to the preaching of the gospel. He was not the first Waldensian and their roots trace back much before him. In fact, one of the early names for the Waldensians was actually the word insabati showing clearly that the Waldensians were Sabbath keepers as they were named after the very day upon which they worshipped. As the Waldensians were coming up in the early centuries and the Roman Catholic Church was forming as well, both of them saw the heathens around them as a mission field. But whilst the Roman Catholic Church used the power of the law and the sword and political alliances to win people over, the Waldensians put their faith in the strength of God's Word. When you gaze on the magnificent mountains that surround us, you cannot but admit that God provided a safe retreat for His people. To the Waldensians was given the task of passing the light on to the Protestants of modern time and penetrating the darkness with true Bible doctrine. Indeed, they maintained longer than any group in the struggle to preserve the Bible and primitive Christianity. In upcoming episodes, we're going to see the caves in which they hid and where they met for worship. We're going to see the places where they trained their young people in how to study the Bible and in how to be missionaries. We're also going to climb mountains and see the cliffs over which the Waldensians were hurled to their death in times of persecution. Truly, the Waldensians stand to us today as a group of people who believed in the Bible, as a group of people who believed in mission service. They are a key part of our spiritual lineage today. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, 
go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Healthy Weight Strategies Cindy had many challenges in her life. She made a positive choice to quit smoking, but in the aftermath, she gained 80 pounds. In her own words, I felt miserable and had a terrible self-image. I was plagued by headaches and stomach pain. I decided that it was time to change my attitude, my thinking, and my choices to turn my life around. I went from wanting to lose weight to winning my battle of the bulge. Here's how. First, I saw my need and potential as they really were. Knowing I had a problem was one thing, but discovering that God had a purpose for my life gave me hope and helped me address my depression as well as my lifestyle choices. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Second, I chose to believe I could change. I stopped listening to the negative, failure-based messages I had rehearsed for years. I stopped making excuses and feeling sorry for myself. Third, I chose faith in God to activate my decision. My faith gave me the power to push through obstacles and learn new habits. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Psalm 32, 8. Fourth, I accepted the support I needed to persist in my decision. I joined a walking, jogging club with other positive-minded people. My husband, Brian, was a tremendous support, and he lost 45 pounds himself. Daily exercise became a priority for me. Fifth, I learned to daily accept responsibility. I daily rehearsed new positive choices instead of giving up every time I made a mistake. Sixth, I chose to act on my decision every day. I made two key lifestyle decisions that were pivotal to moving me forward to reach my goals. I learned how to choose healthful, high-fiber fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and beans, and stopped buying impulse comfort foods. I determined to exercise every day and gradually increase the intensity and frequency, challenging myself to become stronger. Seventh, I learned to see tomorrow's reward in today's discipline. Cindy lost 80 pounds and has kept it off for years now. Most importantly, her thinking and mindset were healed right along with the weight loss, not just her body. Every good choice today yields a gift tomorrow. Now, that's something to look forward to. She shares five shopping secrets for successful weight loss. First, plan ahead. Create a grocery list and stick to it. Go shopping right after a meal so you're satisfied and not hungry. Stay in the area of the store that has the healthier choices. Second, go veggie. Focus on fresh fruits, salads with lots of leafy greens, crunchy raw veggies, and whole grains. Choose healthy fats like walnuts, avocados, and lemon, and olive oil on salads. 
Third, beware of bottles, bags, and bars. Soda pop and sweetened drinks are the number one source of added sugar in the American diet. Just one 12-ounce can of soda a day adds 75 cups of sugar to your diet in one year. A small bag of fried chips can be as much as 420 calories. A baked potato is only 110. A savory ear of corn is just 60. What a difference in flavor as well as fill-up value. Candy bars, even so-called health food bars, are often loaded with calories, low in fiber, and short on appetite satisfaction. Fourth, shift from calorie-dense to calorie-sense. When you take away the fiber and nutrition of whole plant foods, you get sugar, fat, and salt. You would have to eat 25 carrots to get the same calories in just one 8-ounce chocolate bar. Oh, and how quick does a bar like that disappear, only to leave you hungry and craving more? When it comes to weight loss, the real question is, are you eating enough to lose weight? Are you eating enough fiber foods, at least 30 to 50 grams per day, that provide true satisfaction? Fifth, watch for hidden calories. The closer you stick to the produce department, including wholesome beans, unrefined grains such as brown rice, oats, and whole wheat, and fresh vegetables, the less you have to be concerned about calories, fat, sugar, and salt. Each good choice you make paves the way for another. Eating delicious, high-fiber foods eliminates the need for eating all day long. Put a fence around mealtime and drink plenty of water between meals. This reduces cravings for snacks and sugary drinks and improves digestion and energy. More energy and fewer eating episodes means more time, energy, and inclination for daily exercise. And that means more muscle, better metabolism, and deeper, more refreshing sleep. All are essential for balanced living, better mood, and successful weight management. It takes time and perseverance to recover lost ground and form healthy habits. God will give you guidance, power, and the will to stick with it. Cindy won her battle of the bulge and learned to replace the negativity trap of failure-based thinking with positive, can-do thinking. She tapped into God's power, promises, and plan. And so can you. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 103, verse 5. God knows your needs. He understands the challenges you face. We all need his plan and power in life. Would you like his renewing power in your life? Would you like to tell him right now, I'm ready, let's do this. What is a powerful new habit that you would like to focus on or strengthen this week as your first step? God will give you the power and the will to make this positive choice so that you can reach and maintain your healthful weight and enjoy better health, better habits, and a better life. You've been listening to Balanced Living presented by Vicki Griffin. Next, we're going to listen to a song by Carly Fletcher, Looking Unto Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Laying aside every weight and 
This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.